Malcolm Honline is executive vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. Joins us Fridays for the weekly update here at JM and the AM. And Mr. Honline, welcome back to JM and the AM. Uh, good morning to you and good Arab Shabbos to everyone. So the rumors that you were among the unhappy New Yorkers who decided to move to Florida, <laughs> simply not true. You you returned to New York after your Florida Pesach extravaganza. It doesn't mean I'm happy about it, but <laughs> yes. <laughs> did, you meet, did you meet a lot of happier people down there in the Sunshine State? Uh, certainly during the week, yes. It was a relocation of everybody I knew from New York was there anyway, so it, uh, <clears throat> but um, it was a wonderful yontif, and that's what counts. And there is hopefully a bright future for both New York City and New York State, right? You have to be hopeful about that. We have too much of an investment. We have too much right. infrastructure. We have too many people who can't afford to move. We have so many con- considerations that um, we have to sustain the communities here. We have to look to a brighter future, rebuild and strengthen, and hopefully we'll have uh, enlightened officials who who will get how to do that right. Yeah, please God, please God, uh, who are guided well and who will work with the community well. That, that's that's another thing, by the way. You could disagree, and you have disagreed uh, on behalf of our community as a leader with plenty of government officials, but at least you felt an air of cooperation, right? Even when you disagree, there's a an air of cooperation and progress. And, and openness and yeah. readiness to hear and to, to listen and not think you have all the answers and not think that uh, you can do it by diktat. Yeah, we need a <laughs> good point. We need more communication and, and, and not on social media, as you just suggested. Malcolm, a lot's happened over the last couple of weeks. Uh, I, I was thinking of you because I, I said probably nobody better than you can explain uh, in light of the uh, big episode just how important the Suez Canal is. <laughs> how many times were you thinking over the last few weeks, my God, it's amazing how important that waterway is? It's absolutely true that uh, people take for granted and, and don't consider the importance of Egypt generally, uh, but also the importance of the canal and how it can become a base for sabotage that you can cause billions and billions of dollars in damage accidentally, uh, but think if they wanted to do it intentionally, right. and the um, uh, the need for alternatives, and uh, you know there were always talks of creating a canal in Israel, elsewhere. Um, but right now, it is uh, it is really a, such a critical uh, waterway, and uh, people don't think about what terrorists could do in a place like that. And it's always been this way, right? You go back in history; it, it has never not had an important role in global commerce. Well, since it's constructed, right? Right, <laughs> right. right. Since its <laughs> yeah. beginning, it is not an ancient uh, discovery that somebody right. just rebuilt, uh, but it is. It has been very critical. It saves weeks off um, the travel time of having to go around uh, South Africa to get to to the east. Right. I put it that way because there are commentators who are going out of their way to to express skepticism about the fact that it, that so much of the world's commerce and trade is dependent on that canal. But the reality is, as you just pointed out, that. You know, it, it was created to do exactly that. And if there were additional either alternatives or additional ways to create more of those waterways, we likely would, right? Uh, right. It's a, it's a huge undertaking. They did widen it um, a couple years ago. Um, and, you know, people have to transverse it to really understand its significance. 
And you also had the Panama Canal, which right. is very important. Sure. But now with the super tankers, uh, super ships, which carry thousands of of the containers, you know, the railroad car right. like box containers. I mean, people can't even imagine how huge these things are. They 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 have literally thousands of them on there, with plenty of traffic going on all day long. Right, which and is the, and just it, unbelievable. These are transforming. I mean, commerce right. because of their size and, and the demand of what they need to, to. Now, I think people will start looking to size down the ships. You know, it's funny, and, and the reason I'm so fascinated by this, frankly, is probably why any common man and woman are fascinated by it. This episode, you know, it, it really made us think about how we get everything that we have. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, you ask the average kid where, where you know, uh, where uh, where corn comes from, and they'll tell you a can from the supermarket shelves. You know, they don't think, they don't think about where, you know, all these stuff's being imported from and how many different and a variety of things, you know, are, are being shipped and uh, and delivered uh, via this method. So I, I just thought it was a big eye-opening experience for everybody uh, because you've mentioned, you know, waterways like the Suez and others uh, that are strategic points, that are points that are, you know, that have to be guarded from sabotage, uh, right? Not just the Suez. There are other uh, waterways that always have to be guarded from sabotage. And several that are right now under siege, and, and it's why I know people may glaze over when they hear us discussing sometimes the Baba Mandab, which is now, you know, part of Yemen, and where the Iranians have ships, we all have, a lot of people have ships down there now, and um, and they have bases there. The, the Turks built a base nearby because the control over these waters, these are chokeholds. You can stop all the incoming goods to, let's say, Jordan right. and to, to Saudi Arabia, to Israel, and remember the Straits of Tehran. Mm-hmm. People will remember the Six-Day War started sure. because they blocked the, the Straits of Tehran. And so these waterways are really critical. And Iran, we know, has designs because they said we're going to control the entrance from the Baba Mandam, and we have them at the Straits of Hormuz. And and these waterways have limited areas where ships can transverse. You don't have to block the whole thing. And you know, this you could cut off sixty percent of the oil coming to the west. You can block, you know, uh, as this did. I mean, nobody could believe if you would say to somebody, you know, each day you close it, it's going to cost $10 billion. It could disrupt the economies of countries. Everybody would laugh at it. I think the figure was 3% of the world economy. Uh, that I don't remember if it was a day, a week, and I, I don't remember the exact uh, statistic, but I do remember that, that they kept huge. they kept throwing around this number 3%. And when you think about it in the context of what the world economy is, it's a, a tremendous amount of value, obviously. All right, we go to the Israeli election. Uh, the latest I heard, I don't know what's changed over the last day because I didn't uh, check into it yesterday, but uh, BB has 52 seats under his uh, alliance mandate, etc., Yair Lapid, 45. Bennett is controlling seven. And three parties total are controlling 16. With this picture, the president of Israel has uh, instructed Prime Minister Netanyahu to try to form a government. Can he? So the president had no choice. As he indicated, this was not his preference. He did not want to give it to Netanyahu. Uh, You know, there's great tension between them. And... um, they, uh, he, he had to look at and, and meet with each party, right. and in as much as no one else came had a higher number, he had to give it to the charge to Netanyahu. But he's saying now that he would only do one. You remember in the past years, you had a renewal and an right. extension, and that could go to somebody else. And right. he's saying no, he's only going to do one. Then he's going to give it back to the Knesset. 
Um, so Netanyahu has uh, literally a few weeks to try and see if he can cobble together uh, some sort of an agreement. The problem is that his credibility with some of the partners, if he's talking about you know rotational government or shared responsibilities, they don't necessarily trust his word based on some of the past experience, of, most recently with Gans. A very diplomatic way of putting that. Yeah. And, uh, but on the other hand, I think most people recognize that he is the most experienced and uh, somebody you know has a proven record in what he did with the with COVID. Certainly, it stands out in the world. As a remarkable achievement, and uh, the fact that the economy is, is surviving, it, it took a heavy hit. The, the, the deficit will increase uh, significantly, but uh, they've continued to to move ahead, and, and especially with the high tech and other areas that people thought could be would be impacted. Uh, so he has a lot of the assets that he comes into this with, but also the alienation of a lot of these people, most of whom came from his party, Bennett, you know, Saar, right. others. Uh, so whether he can really uh, put together a group and would have Ram in the coalition but not in the government, you know, this is the mm-hmm. Islamist party, it seems to me a stretch to believe that uh, that that would happen. But the leader of Ram made some conciliatory speeches, and people think that this could be a radical shift in in the area and in the relationship, but that has yet to be proven so there's there's um it's a tight rope uh, act right now and he 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 may yet pull it off i don't i wouldn't dismiss it he doesn't want to go to another election and there's talk you know they would offer him the presidency with immunity but experts there tell me that that, that is not likely uh, but i wouldn't rule it out uh, he basically has told Shavuos, um on the timeline to try to form this government. The way these things usually work in Israel, we, we probably won't have any real indication about the possibilities of anybody seriously joining with him for at least four or five weeks, right? Because if they're going to do it, they're probably going to wait till the very end to, you know, for, for the deadline to make a deal like that, correct? Yeah, I think it would be the lower end of that time span, but yes, and, and they're going to you know, leverage it, because when, as desperation, you, you make more concessions, right. uh, as we see in regard to Iran, that the, um, right. um, but you're right, it's not going to be, it's not going to be something that, yeah, we, 10 days, a couple, yeah. two weeks. That, we, we won't hear any news for a while, let's put it that way. And, and, and the press... Well, you may hear news because, you know, parties could switch or parties could say, you know, they were the, the, positioning themselves. Right, but that's just, you know, posturing in public, right? We don't, it doesn't really mean that they, in the end, might actually... They have an accord. Right. Um, the, um, what was I just going to ask? So, so oh yeah, and the presidency thing is, is intriguing, because, uh, not that you, not that I'm asking you to psychoanalyze him, but is it simply his ego that prevents him from doing what I think would be naturally phenomenal for him because as president of Israel, he would still be an international celebrity. He'd use the role completely differently, I believe, than than any previous president as a figurehead has. He'd still have this international presence. Obviously, the court and and legal stuff would be over with. Is it it only an ego thing that keeps him going uh, with the desire to to maintain his position as prime minister? Well, when I asked asked this question... um First of all, most of the media people dismiss dismiss the prospect, but and there are other people who want to be president who are not going to be happy if they make the deal. Uh, it would give him continue to give him a free house and a, a platform, as you said. Right. But it's not the same thing, and people feel it would be humiliation for the prime minister 
than to have somebody else really running the government and they are really a side act. Although Rivlin was an activist president, yeah. so was Shimon Peres, um, as opposed to others who, who were more the figurehead. And I think, and I think BB comes in with even more than they had at that at that point. That, that's true, but they're not. But he's not a decision maker. He's not going to the Knesset with legislation. He's not going to be able to make decisions with foreign leaders, and and that will be very frustrating for somebody who is the longest serving prime minister in Israel's history. Right. So he can't go and, uh, and 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 talk about policy regarding Iran. It just wouldn't be appropriate because that would be the prime minister or defense minister's role. So right. It, it, would just, it would just be wrong to do that. Even he if, could even have if, discussions, but right. he can't do anything about it. And he can't and no prime minister negotiate on it. Right, and no prime minister is going to say, do us a favor, you know, get out there in the media and do X, Y, and Z. I mean, there'll never right. be that type of cooperation, right? <laughs> of no. course not. It's America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program heard on listener-sponsored digital radio. Round the world of web and AchimSegal.com and the AchimSegal Network and, of course, on the beloved NSN app. What do you make of uh, what seemed over Yuntiv? I don't know how many of our listeners realized this, but it did make the news. Uh, what, what do you make of the fact that it, it looked like uh, there was a leniency that was instituted in Harabayat on the Temple Mount regarding tefillah, regarding open prayer by Jews on the Temple Mount? Was that a, a temporary thing or is this a new trend? Well, there have been repeated attempts to do it. It's too early to tell whether this will be uh, something that will be honored. I mean, certainly it is, you know, incomprehensible that Jews can't utter a prayer when they go on and get subject to arrest if you do. But any idea why this time nobody stopped no. them? It's so it's so interesting. And there was a minion, by the way. It's not just someone who prayed, you know, individually. They actually, you know, they demonstrated that they were praying publicly. And, and, and apparently nobody said a word. And I wonder if this is something that's going to continue or something that was just isolated. Uh, for the Pesach holiday. Um, what can you tell us about these uh, PA payments? The United States government, uh, or at least some members of the United States government, are taking pride that certain uh, financial aid, and you'll explain what that aid really is in a minute, I'm sure, um, that was stopped during the Trump administration has been restarted. What's the uh, situation with that now? Okay, so there are various aspects uh, of it. First of all, you have the aid to UNRWA, restoring a U.S. membership, which President Trump had cut off. UNRWA is a U.N. agency, Relief Works agency, supposedly created for Palestinian refugees. And by the biggest estimate, there were 200,000 left. Some official studies say maybe 30,000. And you have more than 30,000 employees of UNRWA servicing them and billions of dollars. And too often, UNRWA has been complicit in, uh, for instance, the curricula that is viciously anti-Israel and anti-Semitic and in activities that were seen as being supportive of, of in ways of terrorism. So the the uh, withdrawal was something that Israel, obviously, and many others uh, welcomed, and we have been pushing for reform, for, for cutting off aid until they do change, because they make all sorts of promises. And we've met with Secretaries General of the U.N. consistently about it, and they say, look, it's an independent agency, but we're trying, we're pressuring it. And the bottom line was that there was never any change. And you know that UNRWA schools... Have been have been storage places for rockets and all sorts of other activities. So that's one level. The second level is the re, uh, resumption of certain aid that was approved by the Trump administration already. And the question is, does it violate the Taylor Force Act because pay to slay remains the policy of the Palestinian Authority? So you have various payments of fifteen million dollars, seventy-five million dollars. Total, it comes to about a hundred and I think fifteen million, or, or a little over a hundred million. 
uh, and I'm sure Congress is going to to want to review this and inspect exactly where the money, how, what guarantees we have that it will be used for the purposes for which it was uh, given, and it can't be given to the PA. The argument that the government is using is that this is money, for instance, for uh, hospitals, the Augusta Victoria and the uh, other hospitals in East Jerusalem. That is something every administration has supported. Israel has not objected to it. Uh, in fact, I think it supports that, too. Uh, so that they have these medical services. That's $75 million. And much of that money goes through Catholic charities or other uh, institutions, you know, vehicles. It doesn't go to the PA itself. And uh, so those things all need to be clarified exactly how much, but the administration has moved quickly to restore the assistance and that also for security cooperation and... Um, uh, you know, there obviously are objections being raised by Israel, uh, but whether this is a violation and the PA, the, the reason why we cut aid to PA because they refused to reduce the, the, or, or to stop the payments directly to terrorists, quite the contrary. We know that they're finally constantly trying to find ways to finagle around it, but they're still paying uh, directly to the terrorists or their families, and it, it seems to be an increasing amount. Another way for the President of the United States to show that he's not Donald Trump, huh? <laughs> well, he, he, he's moved on you know, a number of fronts. This is one of them. Uh, the question what priority the Middle East will have in this administration is still not clear. I mean, the Iran, uh, you yeah. know, the PA is moving towards an election. Um, Abbas is actually, I think, in Germany getting medical treatment right now. But the... Uh, you know, they, they refused to call from Blinken because they, they would only talk to, to Biden. Right. And the election there is moving in so far. The Hamas has submitted their list. We haven't seen, <clears throat> I haven't seen the list at uh, Abbas, but they submitted a list as well. Whether the election will actually take place or not is always in, in question. It's officially next month, right? In May. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, what are the... What, what's the current situation regarding travel in and out of Israel? Um, a month from now, and I'm not only asking for selfish purposes. I mean, we've announced that we're trying to actually do some broadcasts from Israel toward the end of May. So th- we do have a, a, a you know a personal interest here. But a month from now, do you think there will be open travel, maybe with a requirement to prove that one is vaccinated? Do you think there will be open travel U.S. to Israel? Uh, frankly, I can't. I can't uh, understand day to day what the restrictions and they they did lift, as you know, for first degree relatives, for people who have kids serving in the army, right. for special uh, things. And, I've gotten students. so many calls about it, and and it's uh, it's Rahmanist on people because they file all these papers and they do all the work, including people going on Aliyah who've had um, bureaucratic problems because the the consulates are only working part time; they're on shifts because of COVID. And because they didn't have clarity about what the law is. So this week there was a change. They do seem to be, uh, they will be allowing them, but there was like an eight-page memo on it that nobody could understand really. <laughs> and the, the officials themselves were telling me, we don't understand it. So they were waiting for clarity about what what would be entailed. I do think that by Shulis people will be able to to begin to travel or you know, they, they're talking about um, group travel. They're talking about other conditions um, that that could be imposed. But it all depends on what the, the COVID uh, prog- 
progress is. Right now it's good, and uh, they're heading towards herd immunity. It's, it's remarkable, but the... Um, uh, you know, in the region itself, it's it's not great. There, many countries are still are getting worse, including European countries. Uh, people still should exercise caution and care in this regard. I do think that uh, eventually they will have some sort of a document that will enable uh, people to show that they were inoculated or their tests, whatever. Uh, so it's still unclear. I understand people's frustration with this. Oh, me. yes. And uh, but I, but I do think for certainly for an individual to go, I think that that will be possible before too long. Prince Philip died a few hours ago. Did you ever meet him? Uh, I met him once. Cool. Um, I didn't talk to him or anything because he, he didn't. He wasn't allowed to talk. I think. But the Queen, <laughs> uh, you know, the, the he, he was always at the side of the Queen. Right. And uh, you know. All right, sounds like you can call him a friend, which is great. I would not call no, <laughs> no, I wouldn't say that. And, uh, I'm kidding around. I would call him sir or your majesty. Because pe- pe- but, people, but, people tend to ask me, was he was he or she, depending on who passed away, a friend of Israel? And I said, in his case, I don't think anybody can make any evaluation about that. Like, he never, I don't think he made any public statements about anything. Am I right? Like, but, right, but remember that that his family are the ones we, I talked about right. who were buried on Harazetim. Right. And who was who saved Jews during uh, World War One family in Greece during World War Two? Right. His sister. So there is some connection. No question about it. Can you explain the rift in the Jordanian royal family? Uh, yes, jealousy. Um, is it still going on? Well, I'm, you used the right word because most people talk about it, rebellion and other things. There were no troops moved. There were no tanks around the um, the presidential palace, so it was not a coup. Uh, it was uh, some sort of a rift where, as you know, the the, the king, uh, the current king, had a half brother, right. and who was the son of the king, but a different mother from Queen Noor, and she, um, uh, and he was the crown prince, but but the king. As his father did, because it was his brother who was next in line to be king after him, uh, King Hussein's brother, uh, and he instead chose his son Abdullah, who's now the king. And Abdullah chose his son to be the crown prince, and relegated the other one to, you know, his royal duties, which were uh, limited. But he had many discussions. He didn't engage in any. It doesn't appear that he engaged in any real conspiracies or anything. And he did pledged fealty to the king and rapidly moved to, to quell this. Um, but it showed the king is very sensitive to this stuff, and, and rightfully so, because you have a lot of factions that want to overthrow him in, in Jordan. And, you know, the, his wife is Palestinian. That becomes an issue uh, among some of the Bedouin tribes and the Bedouins versus the Palestinian population, uh, let alone all of those like Iran that are trying to undermine uh, the government. It did call attention to Jordan, which gets very little notice, and the significance of the country, even though it doesn't have natural resources or a great economy or other things, but it is strategically very important because it is still a buffer between Iran and Israel, Iraq and Israel, uh, and uh, absent the king and and his position, you would bring troops right up to Israel's uh, border. I assume that 
a, a more stable royal palace in Jordan is simply better for Israel, I would guess, right? Absolutely. But I think that they, they proved that, that stable, that the troops were loyal to him, the army was loyal to him, and once, as long as the army is loyal, they, he will be safe. But it tells you that it's a very delicate situation. Look, these kind of palace intrigues go on in all the countries. It's Saudi Arabia. We have the princes who don't like um, MBS. And you have it in, in many of these countries. And there are so many volumes, both historical and novels, about palace intrigue. And this this is a case of it. But... They caught it, and I think it was a preemptive move before anything really took place. And I don't think it was meant to be an overthrow. I think it was meant to influence and to raise concerns about the status of democracy, etc. Interesting. Um, uh, the Israeli, yesterday was Yom HaShoah. I mean, today, you know, generally, it's the 27th of Nisan, observed yesterday because of the proximity to Shabbos this year. Um, I'm, I'm assuming you saw that the NBA player from Israel, mm-hmm. I mean, that's pretty amazing. And the influence one can have when they have a stage like that is incredible. And to hear the announcers talk about the fact that Yiskar is on his sneaker because today's Yom HaShoah. And by the way, you know what else it did for me seeing that? I'm always thinking that, you know, your generation, my generation, etc. You know, we have this connection, obviously, closer in time and, and, and growing up. Obviously, Yom HaShoah had a very, had a more, uh, you know, we knew more people who were, who were involved, could tell stories, lived through it, etc., etc., etc. And you wonder, can the 20-year-olds living in Israel relate to that? And this kid, as a leader, at the age of 20, 21, whatever he is, he went ahead and and understood the importance and the important role that he had to be able to make a statement like this. And I think that's really encouraging when you see people in that generation take a, take that role upon themselves. Especially when you look at the latest studies which show that the, such a significant part of young Americans and others around the world can't identify Auschwitz, have no idea that six million Jews were killed. It's... Um, uh, really quite disturbing. What what I think was remarkable this year is that there were Holocaust commemorations in Bahrain, in the right, UAE, right. and uh, both online and real right. events. I think that we should not dismiss it. This is an important acknowledgement. Something we we worked with the Muslim World League, who um, Muhammad Alisa, who, who was really courageous in leading some of this long ago, and the King of Morocco, who instituted Holocaust education in this school system. But we see that now in the Arab world, this greater, or in these countries at least, uh, recognition of the importance of, of studying the Shoah and the and remember, it's Yom HaShoah Bagvura that we remember. Right. Also, the Heroes right. Remembrance Day aspect of it. I think what the basketball player did, and also he wore a black T-shirt, right. which uh, you know was a sign of mourning. Mm-hmm. I, I think it was incredibly important, especially for young people. And the, and as you said, that the announcer who must have been Jewish because he talked about Yom HaShoah <laughs> sounded very uh, comfortable with the expression. He did a very good job. Denny Avdia. Denny Avdia is the uh, right. is the player, and he is, believe it or not, just 20 years old. Now, uh, and, 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 and his mother is Jewish, so yes, he does have a Jewish mother, and he's really Jewish, folks. Uh, um, the reason I brought up Yom HaShoah, frankly, though, was not just to discuss the Washington Wizards. It was an opportunity for the prime minister to give a pretty stern warning about an Iran deal. Obviously, Yom HaShoah uh, makes us think about what's going on today and those who who openly tell us that they want to annihilate Jews, and Iran is number one on that list, obviously. I, I mean, is there going to be a showdown? You remember, Netanyahu Obama 
was a real public showdown, I think you'd agree, when it came to the Iran deal and one tried to one-up the other and you had two pretty intelligent leaders going at it. Is there going to be a Netanyahu-Biden showdown on this issue? Uh, I, I, certainly there's an escalation already in the rhetoric and coming in the political context in Israel also uh, heightens the... Um, Let's say the sensitivity and the uh, maybe the rhetoric, but for Israel, this is such a vital issue. It's a life and death issue when it comes to Iran because Iran continues all of its activities, and now they're talking about a second deal that would uh, that they would only deal with the nuclear part, and then there would be a second agreement that would deal with their activities in the region and their the, the ballistic missiles and all the other threatening things. And, and it's not just Israel. This is as great a threat to, to many of the Arab states, uh, Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, UAE, right. and other, others. And they get that. It is, and, and it's forcing, and they're, it's, it, this is bringing them closer to Israel yep. Yep. as they see America, number one, with withdrawing some of our military presence. We, we, we took out the batteries, the um, Patriot-like batteries, anti-aircraft from Saudi Arabia because they said they were afraid they're going to be hit by the Houthis. That doesn't make any sense to me. <laughs> Uh, we also have withdrawn our aircraft carriers we've, we've placed down. And regardless of what the intent is, and they're moving, and clearly the focus of the administration will be on the Indo-Pacific, China primarily. But the um, uh, for the countries in the region see America withdraw from, from this engagement at a time when Iran is doing more, and China with the road and belt in, in, in uh, extending to... Uh, Iran and signing a $400 billion deal, and um, et cetera. I mean, that isn't as economically important as it is politically significant. Uh, and the talks in Vienna and, and, and the constant talk that the concessions will be made, and Iran is demanding concessions first. And we see the United States seeming to move to a softer position. So far, it hasn't happened, and we'll have to see. But, uh, you know, the... Uh, there's an escalation in tension with the hits on the Israeli ship a week two weeks ago, and now on the Savas, uh, this Iranian IRGC spy ship that was hit by a limpid mine in uh, off the coast of Yemen in the Red Sea. Uh, so we're seeing escalations in in that. And while the IEA, International Atomic Energy Agency, is saying that they've just started a fourth cascade of centrifuges, IR2 centrifuges, they they are moving ahead on their nuclear program. They're saying we're not going to dismantle what we have. Uh, and said, maybe if we reach an agreement, we will go back somewhat. If we don't put clear markers down, and if we don't really demand performance first, we will get nothing. They're never going to get to a second deal. They're not going to um, uh, withdraw all the, the Russians. And the Russians and Chinese are, are ready to move in wherever we create a vacuum. And it sounds like a vacuum is being created, certainly in the perception of the countries in the region, when our aircraft carriers are moved to other areas. It doesn't mean we don't have a capacity. We still have tens of thousands of troops in the Gulf. Right. And you don't need big numbers. I understand that. To uh, You know, you see a thousand Americans in Syria made a big difference. But but the perception is what concerns me. And if these countries see that they, or don't feel that they can rely on the United States, they will turn, I think, to Israel, but they'll also turn to others. And, you know, India just opened uh, a new base in the Gulf of Oman, because when China is, there you are. Um, but it also has to do with trade. It has to do with the energy. It has to do with 
I mean, it's such a complicated and complex picture. And if we go into this deal because the Europeans really want a deal, everybody wants to to, to show that they're, they're going to show that they're doing something different and they're going to reverse because you have a lot of people in this administration who were the originators of the JCPOA. So if they talked the extension, they wanted it longer and stronger. That was the terms the administration representatives used. Well, let's see whether it's going to be longer and a stronger restriction, whether they'll really be able to put the, the reverse some of these actions. But we see in Natanz and Fordo and all these places where they were supposed to have dismantled, they didn't, and they're moving ahead on their nuclear, on the ballistic, and the weaponization programs. I'll save the uh, Randy Weingarten question for next week, uh, primarily because I need the weekend just to try to figure out exactly what she said and how it possibly makes sense. <laughs> so I'll ask you about that. It doesn't that. make any sense. It makes yeah. no sense. I don't even follow the logic that she's right. that she's presenting, but I'll ask you about that uh, next week. Have a wonderful Shabbos, and thanks so much for joining hey, us. Great Shabbos. Be well. Malcolm Holmline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations, joins us Friday's weekly update here at JM in the AM.